Before we start this morning, I want to bring back an old controversy because there's nothing more fun to do after a nice worship service than to bring back an old worship controversy. Some of you guys are old enough back in the 90s to remember the worship wars. Anybody remember those worship wars? Uh, those fights over screens, those fights over lyrics, those fights over praise choruses, and, and we're, we're pretty well past that now. Um, and, and I don't want to talk this morning about worship in, in excessiveness, but I, I do want to just talk about those worship wars for a second. It was kind of a silly little debate we had, especially in the 90s, over whether we could sing hymns or whether we could sing praise songs. And I don't know about you, but I'm a, a hymn guy, and I love hymns. I'm not anti-praise. We, we sang praise music this morning, and I loved it. But I love nice, deep, rich hymns. Am I the only one in here? Anybody in here love old hymns? My, okay, good. I'm glad. A lot of you all. Why do we love old hymns? What is it that we love about old hymns? Well, if you ask that question, you typically get two responses. One is they're so deep and rich theologically. They're just so biblically grounded and sound in the Bible. And two is, they're not, they're not 7-Eleven songs, right? Seven words repeated 11 times, you've heard that. The new praise songs are all just over and over and over again. I'm stepping on some toes here because we sang praise music this morning, and we love old rich hymns, right? Like, I love this hymn. I, I love, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here's how the, the lyrics go. Listen to the richness of this old hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Two things about that. One, you probably thought I was going to sing that, and I didn't, and you're either disappointed or relieved. I don't know. Um, two, some of it is just the old language that makes it sound rich, right? The thighs that are thrown in there and, and the melodious sonnet, right? It just sounds rich and deep. But there's a lot of rich, deep theology in this song. Verse two starts off with this. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. I know, I don't, when's the last time you raised your Ebenezer? Anybody want to let me know the last time, right? Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither to the cross I come. An Ebenezer is not just a fancy old word that makes the hymn sound rich. Actually, Gary looked it up a few years ago because we had questions about what an Ebenezer is. And to be honest with you, I don't remember Gary's answer, so I had to look it up again. So if I've got it wrong, Gary can correct me after the service, okay? An Ebenezer actually references back to 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. And in there, there's this battle going on between the Israelites and the Philistines, and they're fighting back and forth. And uh, Philistines are winning and steal the Ark of the Covenant, and Israel seems defeated. And they cry out to God for help. And God answers by sending a thunderous sound so loud that it frightens the Philistines and allows Israel to come in and overtake them and conquer them and take back the Ark of the Covenant. And in that... Uh, moment of praise they're shouting out praises to god samuel puts a stone at a high place an altar and he calls it his ebenezer that he puts down as a reminder that god has helped them so when we sing here i raise my ebenezer next time you sing that song it's a reminder of saying i'm lifting up 
praise to God for how he has helped me and blessed me. It goes along with the theme of the song. Your blessing is like a fountain, right? So deep and rich and theological. We love that about hymns. Maybe one of my favorite verses in all of hymns is verse 3 of this song. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You think of our praise songs, and and the reason why they were worship wars is we don't have songs, or seemingly don't have songs, that have that deep, rich, theological meaning to it. And so there were battles back and forth because these newfangled songs weren't like Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. They weren't deep and they repeated too much. Don't you hate those songs that repeat the same thing over and over again? Do those get on your nerves? They get annoy you a little bit when it just goes on and on and on. Like, for instance, we think about those old hymns that are deep and rich and theological and constant, and some of these other songs that repeat over and over again. Who's going to win the worship war? Let's not be too repetitive. Can you finish this line for me? What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Seems a little repetitive, doesn't it? (laughs) So we have these arguments back and forth, and we go, oh, but these new songs are so repetitive, and we forget that the hymns were often so repetitive. In case you're wondering, if you're not familiar with that song, verse 2 continues to repeat. For my part in this I see. (laughs) For my cleansing, this my plea. This isn't a 7-Eleven song, but it repeats quite a bit. Okay, but at least it's deep and rich and theological, right? Not like some of those songs that are lacking in theology. We love the old hymns because they're so theological. How about this? For a theological song. <clears throat> There's sunshine in my soul today, more glorious and bright than glows in any earthly sky, for Jesus is my light. There's sunshine, blessed sunshine, when the peaceful, happy moments roll. When Jesus shows his smiling face, there's sunshine in my soul. You may love that hymn, but can I tell you, it's about this deep theologically. <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's fine. It's a good chorus. I like it. But it's not that deep, rich, come thou fount of every blessing song. All right, but Pastor Trey, you're just picking, you're just picking random hymns. Most of the hymns are outliers if they repeat. Or most of the hymns are outliers if they're, they're shallow. How about this one? Finish the line for me, and let's see how this goes. Some glad morning, when this life is over, to a home on God's celestial shore. Oh, glory. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. Can I tell you, that song's also about this deep theologically, and it's not a 7-Eleven song. It's a 315 song. Three words repeated 15 times in that hymn. I don't say all that to say who's going to win the worship war. It, it, it's over and it doesn't matter. You know what wins is songs that we sing in praise to God. But here's my point in all of this, is we sometimes look at things and say the theology is what matters to me, when really what matters is our own familiarity and our comfort. 
That's really what matters. And when it comes to music, this is glaringly obvious. We sit back and we say, we love this because of how rich and biblical it is, when in reality, we love it because we're familiar with it. We love it because, because it's what we grew up singing. And, and that's okay, but let's not assign what God doesn't assign to a song or anything else in life. It's true for everything in our lives. We don't crave often the biblical. We crave the familiarity. We want what's comfortable for us. We want just to have an easy life. The Bible, and I hope you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews has been addressing Jesus as the ultimate high priest. He's talking about how he is the intercessor for us. He's the one who is able to ultimately not only provide the sacrifice to God, but be the sacrifice to God. He's giving this deep, rich theology on why Jesus Christ is better than any other sacrificial method, any other angel or being or creature. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and he interrupts in these few verses because they're in danger of missing truth. We want to make sure we're focused on the biblical and not the comfortable. We want to make sure we're focused on theology and not familiarity. One more interactive. If, if you believe the following statements, will you boldly and loudly repeat them after me? The Bible is the Word of God. What it teaches, I will believe. What it commands, I will obey. And when it convicts, I will change. Let's read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 together. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. By the way, the, the about this references Jesus as, um, as the great high priest and king. Uh, they compare him to a man named Melchizedek, and you can read about that in chapter 5. It's really hard to understand in this morning's message. I'm like the author of Hebrews. We have much to say. It's hard to explain. If you want to hear his explanation, your homework is to read Hebrews chapter 7. He explains it a little bit more. But coming off of this deep, rich theological conversation, he says, we've got much more to say about it. It's really hard to explain. And then he hits him in the mouth. Why is it hard to explain? Since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for those who are mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This morning, as the author of Hebrews is writing, he's giving some deep, rich, theological, really hard-to-grasp-and-understand concepts about who Christ is as the perfect priest, the perfect king, the perfect sacrifice. And he pauses and he says, I don't even know if I'm getting through to you guys because you're so dull of hearing and you're babies in the faith. He's not saying that as a compliment, by the way. He's not trying to sit back and go, you guys have just learned about this stuff. What he's saying is, you should already know these things. But you're dull to hear, you don't want to listen, and you stay where you're at. Growing up in Florida, we, we had lime trees in our yard. Um, 
lemon trees were my favorites. They were crossed between a lime and a lemon, and so just neat fruit and things you can get down in Florida that you can't get elsewhere. And um, they were fun to pick and make different uh, limeade drinks from or lemon drinks. That's really good. But you know, we had these trees that had been there for years and were you know fairly tall, maybe twenty feet tall, and uh, very full of fruit and. And we'd go out and we'd pick the fruit each year and we'd wait till that lime would go from really dark green to kind of a greenish yellow and you knew it was time to, to pluck it off of the tree. You could watch it grow until it was the right size, the right color, and you, you'd grab it. And every year we knew as the seasons came and went when the trees were ready to pick based on their size, based on their color, based on their growth. There was one year in Florida where we had a, a disease that just ran through a lot of the citrus trees down in South Florida, and several of them had to be killed and cut down, and, and our trees survived, but many of the trees, the signs that you would start to see are, are certain things on the leaves and, and certain um, um, discolorations and normal disease stuff, but one of the factors that you would notice is the fruit would start to grow and it just would never get past that, that small green spot. It would just stay that, that little lime or that little lemon or that little orange or whatever citrus plant it was supposed to be. And you knew immediately when it had been weeks and the fruit stayed the same that your tree was dead and it was of no use. This is a picture that the author of Hebrews is giving us. Some of you guys, your fruit is not developed. After all these years, you should be bearing this bright, greenish yellow juicy limon and instead your babies you're dull of hearing and you've not moved past the elementary teachings he says enough we've got to deal with this issue it's time for you to step up it's time for you to take the next step in your faith it's time for you to stop drinking the milk and start chewing food it's time for you to take a step and mature so this morning, I want to look at what mature believers look like, according to the author of Hebrews. Two characteristics that he points out that they should have that they don't. Two things that mature believers have that immature believers just don't seem to grasp. The first is this. Mature believers are well-learned. Mature believers are well-learned. They're educated in the Word. They've read the Word of God, they've studied the Word of God, and they want to know more about the Word of God. A mature believer doesn't just listen to opinions, they study the Bible. They know what it says, and they want to know more. That's why he tells us in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, smart enough, learned enough to be teaching others, you need someone to teach you again. You're not learned. You've not educated yourself someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of god you need milk not solid food the problem with these christians that the the author of hebrews is writing to is that that they never moved past just the simple things they didn't study the scriptures they knew the general things and they were comfortable with that and so they ought to be teaching it and passing it on instead someone has to remind them of the teachings and the truths. I'm shocked at the number of Christians who read their Bible less than once a week. I'm shocked at the number of Christians who have, have multiple Bibles on their bookshelves at home or on their coffee tables that are collecting dust and never opened. 
And the reason why this shocks me is not because I've not been there or done that, and I still sometimes struggle to get into God's Word, but we're always asking, where's the, the manual to life? How are we supposed to live, not just in this life, for all of eternity? And it's like God says, I'm giving you detailed instructions. There are 66 books that all are pointing you to truths about the Word of God. Open it up and read it, and we go, I wish we had a book somewhere that would just tell me how to do this. Statistics for Christians and the amount of times they read the Bible are, quite honestly, they're embarrassing. And I sense by just the way the air sucked out of the room that some of us in here are imagining our Bible that's sitting on our shelf that hasn't been opened since we don't remember when. Or maybe it's a copy of God's Word you brought with you this morning. It gets open on Sunday mornings, maybe on Wednesday nights. You get it for Sunday school and church, and then you take it home and you sit it on the shelf and you wait till next week. We're not well-learned people. We're just, we're not. We desire to know what God wants for our lives, but we won't read the manual he gave us to live it out. Not so with mature believers. Mature believers are well-learned. They've studied the word of God. They want to know more about what God has for their lives. Why don't we read the Bible? Why don't we open it up and start studying the Word of God? If we know that it has the meaning for all of eternity, if it gives us the truths of salvation, why don't we dust it off more often? I think it's because we view the Bible as something to do and not something to learn and grow. We view the Bible as a manual more than we do God's Word. And so we, we turn to it when we need something. We, we Google Bible verses about. It's okay, you can do that sometimes. It's okay. But that's the extent of our Bible study. Bible verses about tragedy. Bible verses about prayer. Bible verses about forgiveness. Bible verses about mercy. Bible verses about, and we get our snippet, we read it, and we've got our manual, and we're good. You know, the Bible's not meant to be a reference book. It's not. The Bible's not meant for us to be able to, to highlight certain verses so that we can feel good about ourselves in the moment and then move on. It's not a manual that's got cross-references just for the intention of us being able to, to feel God's presence in the moment and then forget about him tomorrow. The Bible's meant to be read all the way through. That doesn't mean you have to read from Genesis to Revelation, but every word of it is important. There's not a bit of it that God doesn't want us to have. And we view the Bible as, we need a little bit of help in this one area. Let me go find something. We don't read the Bible because it brings us closer to God. We read the Bible because it makes us feel better about ourselves. In his book, The Benedict Option, Ron Dreher talks about how we have, as a society in America, failed to show Christian growth and maturity. We can see society around us collapsing in their morality and their Christian faith. Here's what he writes about our desire to know God's will for our lives. He says, the overweight person diets not to punish him or herself for being heavy, but to become healthier. The athlete works out not because he feels guilty for sitting around and watching TV, but to train his body for competition. So it is with monks and their asceticism. And so it must be with us lay Christians. Rod Dreher points out we don't read the Bible because it's something to do or we feel bad about ourselves. We read the Bible because it's what grows our faith. 
We read the Word of God because it's what prepares us for life, not just this one, but for the next one. Mature believers are well-learned. They've studied the Word of God. And we ought to stop right there and ask ourselves a question. Based on my reading of God's Word this past week, am I a mature believer? Based on how much time I have opened my Bible this week, am I prepared to teach or do I still need things taught to me? Not just well-learned, but mature believers also are well-practiced. They take what they learn in the Word of God and they do something about it. And so we read in verse 14 that mature believers should be active, but immature believers are not. Look at me in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice the practice comes after the learning. Right? They get the solid food, and the solid food leads to solid behavior change. They mature. They grow. Can I tell you a secret? This well-practiced thing seems like a lot of work. The well-practiced thing seems like there's a lot that we have to do and a lot of activities and, and things we have to remember and put into place. Can I tell you the practice is the easier part of the two? If you would read the Bible and study it, the practice would happen. I'm telling you right now. If you read the Bible and believed it, the practice would change you. Your practice would be different. So we ask the question, why don't Christians often live like Christians? How come sometimes the church looks more like the world than the world does? Why don't Christians practice what the Bible teaches? Are, are Christians just more tempted than non-Christians for some reason? Do we fall more because we experience greater temptations? Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Do Christians endure more attacks from Satan than a lost world? That, that might be true, but... We have something a lost world doesn't have, right? We've got the Spirit in us. We've got Christ dwelling with us to overcome those attacks. We actually can overcome and defeat those attacks. I don't think that's true. Why don't Christians act like Christians? Are, they, are we lazy? Are we unwilling to be obedient? Is it just too much work and too hard? It's just easier just to do our own thing? Maybe Christians are just too busy with the things of the world. We don't have time to fit in obedience to the Word of God. You know why I think Christians often don't practice and act like Christians? I think Christians don't act like Christians. It's because they don't know why they should act like Christians. In other words, it just doesn't make sense to them. We know better than what God knows. And so I know God says this in this verse, but... I really think it would go better if we did it this way. Let me give you an example. A few examples, but let's start off with the main example. It's no secret at our church right now that our giving has been down in 2021. We, we've had a hard time making budget, and thankfully our expenses are down, and we've got a small cushion, but that cushion will evaporate, right, if giving doesn't meet the budget needs. We've talked about it at business meetings. We've shared it a little bit on Sunday mornings, and and as we read the report, I, I asked for the finance team to give me kind of a breakdown. It's not getting better summertime. It's getting worse, right? Why then, if the Bible commands giving, does a Christian church not give? Why don't we practice? 
you probably have a million different reasons. You've got bills, you've got payments, you've got activities, you've got, and you've got reasons and you've justified it in your mind. Why is giving down? I think giving's down because we don't know why we give. I think that we have in our mind, we give to the church because somehow God needs it. And then we remind ourselves, God doesn't need us. He's okay if I don't give mine because God doesn't need anything. What's worse, that I think some of our giving is down is because some people aren't happy with things at the church. So they don't give. We have this mindset of, if, if they would do things the way they should do them, then I could give to that church. As if giving somehow were tied to the church itself and not obedience to God. Why don't we give? We give because we don't know the theology behind giving. We don't give because we don't understand how God has structured the sacrificial system in the Bible. We're not well-learned, so we don't practice. We don't give so the church will make us happy. We don't give so the church can have more things. We don't give so the church can do more ministries. We give because God commanded that his kingdom is built through the people of his church. We give because all through scripture, God says, the way that I intend to do ministry on earth is through my people. So when you're well-learned, you know that in the Old Testament, God calls the people of Israel to be lights to the nations. It's not to bless them so that they have some special blessing. Israel got that wrong so often. God says, I'm calling you so that you can reach other people. My goal is to work through people and build my kingdom. That's the theology of giving. But we also give because God has taught us that the sacrificial system is not meant to save us, but to remind us of our dependence on God. The sacrifice of Christ is meant to save us. All of the Old Testament sacrifices only pointed that direction. They couldn't save us, but they remind us that we depend on him daily. So if you're well-learned, you start to study in Leviticus. Jordan, do you remember studying in Leviticus, the different sacrifices? You start to learn what they all mean. You start to learn how God is using them, and some of them are simply a reminder that we need to give thanks and depend on God. And giving is carried on as a point of sacrifice, a point of us saying, God, it's not about me, it's about you. God, I depend on you, and I trust you that even when I don't know how this is going to work out, I'm going to be obedient and sacrifice so that I can depend and grow closer to you. This is a great example for all of us. Why don't we practice what we preach? Because we don't know what the Bible says about it. All we know is this. God says do it. We're not well-learned. We're not well-educated enough, and so we don't practice. We don't fulfill what God calls us to do because we're immature. It's the same for a lot of other practices. Why don't you share your faith? Why don't you evangelize? Why don't we attend Wednesday night services? Why don't we come to get plugged into a small group? Why don't we serve the church body by cleaning the church? Can I tell you, there's been two families who have been here to sign up to clean the church over and over and over and over again. I'm looking at a dozen families or more. We've got two that show up to clean. Do you know there's a theology behind serving and cleaning? Jesus washed feet. We can clean toilets. Why don't we serve? Why don't we get plugged in by teaching children? Why don't we work in the nursery? Why don't we participate in mission trips? Why don't we go and and help in Bible school? Why don't we sign up to help at the soup kitchen? Why don't we do any of these practices? It's because we're not well-learned enough to be well-practiced enough. We've got to be in the Word of God. Can I tell you, if you are in the Word of God, the well-learned will be well-practiced. 
A mature Christian, a mature Christian knows that the Word of God changes us. It goes from just knowing things in the Bible to being able to practice and apply things in the Word of God. So this morning, I, I want to ask, what's your next step? It's not an easy one. It's not something that you just flip a switch. My graphics this morning were intentional. I really like this because um, I think sometimes we view life as a video game and we look for shortcuts and cheats. Back in the 90s, I had a Sega Genesis and I played Sonic the Hedgehog. Anybody play Sonic the Hedgehog? If you still have one, I would love to come play it and I would love to show you a cheat. If you're at the start menu and you push up, down, left, right, you hold down A and you push start, it opens up a whole new menu. You can pick any level you want to go to. Did you know that? You can go to the very end and beat Sonic the Hedgehog in one move. You can cheat through that game. There's lots of different cheats in video games. If you Google, how do I cheat in, and you can find a way around just about any game. I tell you, being well-practiced, there's no workaround. There's no cheat. There's no up, down, left, right, hold down A, and push start. There's no shortcut, right? God has given us the plan and the code. Know the Word of God and do it study the Bible and know more about it so you know the why behind and it will change you and you'll desire and want to go. What is your next step? What is God calling you to put into practice? How will you take your faith to the next level? Chapter 6, we're going to wrap up with a couple of verses in chapter 6, helps us with that that next step. In verse 1 it tells us, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And he gives some other elementary doctrines in the following verses. He says, leave the elementary doctrine. That that doesn't mean that we abandon the elementary doctrine. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying, move up to the next step. Think of it like stairs on a pyramid. You start on the bottom step is the foundational step. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling you is, move up and off of that step. By the way, the next step you go to is going to be built on that step you've already left. It's all foundationally there. You're not abandoning these doctrines, repentance from your dead works. You're not abandoning faith towards God. You're not abandoning these elementary things. You're moving to the next step because, can I tell you a secret? The Bible gives us more. There is deeper and richer truths in the Word of God. So take the next step and study. Too many Christians are hanging out on the bottom step, drinking our milk and camping on elementary faith. We're satisfied just to know the basics. This idea, give me Jesus and the rest is just religion. I don't need it. It's just a lot of rules and regulations. Just as long as I know Jesus, I'm good. Can I tell you that? It's confusing to me if all we needed to know was Jesus Christ saves us, which is the most important foundational step. But if that's all God wanted us to know, why did he write 66 books? He could have done that in a sentence. God gave us a richness of wealth by which to build on and know more about him. He starts off by telling the people, you're dull of hearing and you ought to be more mature than you are. But in chapter 6, verse 9, he gives us a glimmer of hope. Though we speak in this way, and he's spoken pretty harshly, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author of Hebrews, and I echo his words, is confident that we can do better, that we can do more. We have to do better. 
God calls us to do better, to know more and to serve more, to practice that salvation more. And I'm sure that better things, things of salvation are coming. Maybe your own salvation. Maybe God is going to use the word of God to to waken you for the first time, or maybe it's salvation by building his kingdom. I'm hoping here in the next couple of weeks we're going to have a baptismal full of youth. I'd love to add you to that. I'd love to add your neighbor to that. I'd love for for you, yourself, to be well-learned and well-practiced and bring others to a knowledge of salvation. This morning, as we think about maturity in Christ, God's calling you to level up, to take the next step, to move forward, to know his word more so that you know how to live more faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us a richness of your word. Lord, the message of it is so simple. We can't, but you can, put our faith and trust in salvation through Jesus Christ. And yet, as simple as that is, you have given us a wealth of understanding and insight into who you are and how you want us to live. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for taking that for granted. Lord, many of us are camped on the elementary things. We're satisfied with knowing the basics, and we don't want to know more. Lord, challenge us to be more in your word, to believe that it's the word of God, so that what it teaches we'll believe and hold fast to. Lord, help us to see what it commands and to obey it. And Lord, there will be times we read it and it will convict and wreck our hearts. Lord, change us because of your word. Lord, let our practice be revolutionized by learning your word. Lord, we pray for anyone in here this morning who is wondering if it can really be so simple as just knowing the word of God and putting our faith and trust in the message of salvation. Lord, let them know as rich of theology as you have for us, it is as simple as confessing you as Savior, forgiving our sins, as Lord, King of our lives. Lord, we submit to you this morning. Lord, lead us as we leave here, not just to set our Bible on our shelf, but to delve into it and know it more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.